I'd like to say that enthusiasm breeds enthusiasm. And I will also tell my, stu my pedagogy students, um, I'm different in a private lesson. I mean, I really love what we do and I love the music. And I let the students see that. I mean, um, um, because I want it to be contagious. So in, in driving a lesson, what we're doing is tr making magic in the lesson and, sh and sharing the magic of a piece or a special moment in a piece um, or uh, steps to, to help a student bring a piece alive. Um, that's all what, what a lesson's about. Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Jane McGraw about repertoire selection. Jane McGraw is well-known as a pianist, teacher, author, and clinician. Her book, The Pianist's Guide to Standard Teaching and Performance Literature, has become a classic reference work for pianists throughout the country, and McGraw's work in the area of the standard classical teaching literature has been central to the current revival of interest in the music throughout the United States. McGraw has written and edited over 40 piano anthologies for Alfred Music. Her articles have appeared in Keyboard Companion, Clavier, and The American Music Teacher, among others, and her music editions are used throughout the United States. For many years, she contributed new music reviews to Clavier and the column Polyphony to The American Music Teacher. Later, her column Musings appeared regularly in Clavier Companion. Her new book, titled Piano Literature for Teaching and Performance, A Graded Guide and Annotated Bibliography, will be released in November 2021 through the Francis Clark Center in Kingston, New Jersey. Jane McGraw has focused her career on sharing her passion for our piano teaching literature with teachers and students alike. Since August 2011, McGraw has served as director of the Classical Music Festival Piano Seminar in Eisenstadt, Austria. She has served as piano coordinator for National Conferences of Music Teachers National Association and served other organizations, including the Francis Clark Center and the World Piano Pedagogy Conference. A native of South Carolina, McGraw received her education at Wesleyan College, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and Northwestern University. She is Professor Emeritus at the University of Oklahoma, where she taught for nearly 40 years and currently resides in Norman, Oklahoma. Repertoire selection is one of the most important aspects of piano lessons, and in my experience, oftentimes we can interpret struggles in our lessons as a reflection of poor teaching strategies on our part, when really the struggle is just the result of a mismatch between student ability and the repertoire selection. So I was thrilled to be able to talk with one of the world experts on this topic. We talked about Jane's two books helping students appreciate the sequential nature of learning, technical challenges, method books versus standard classical repertoire, and how teachers can make repertoire come alive in their studios. I hope you enjoy the interview. Jane, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. 
I'm delighted to be here, Ben. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to be talking about repertoire selection. One of the most common teacher pitfalls, which I admit in, earlier in my teaching career I fell into myself, is I'm going to quote uh, something you wrote in American Music Teacher Magazine, quote, skipping a student around in the vast black hole of literature available. So to help teachers avoid this tendency, you wrote the work Pianist Guide to Standard Teaching and Performance Literature. I'm sure many of our listeners are already aware of this book, but for some of our more uninitiated listeners, can you talk a little bit about this book and the rating system that you used in the book to help piano teachers navigate repertoire choices a bit more thoughtfully? I'll be glad to. Um, and you mentioned uh, an issue that we all deal with um, when we're working with our intermediate students, and that might, might be you know, skipping a student around in that classical literature, say, between um, oh, the Schumann album for the young and trying to teach them classics and have them develop so that they play Schubert impromptus and Chopin ballades and, and really reach the great, the great advanced literature. Um, for so many years, that repertoire wasn't known, that black hole we talk about sometimes of classical teaching literature. Even, even today, I think, um, it's, it's, it's known a good bit better than, say, it was in the 90s or even the, the 1980s. The, the Pianist Guide provides a reference for teachers who might know the works of a specific composer and they want to get to know more works of a specific composer. Or, um, I, as you mentioned, every piece in the Pianist Guide is given a level. The levels that I use in the Pianist Guide are from level 1 to level 10. Uh, and um, I came up with them just in trying to, to write about this literature and actually keep track for myself of how difficult a piece might be in the whole scheme of things. I use, let's just say, when I'm talking to some of our pedagogy students or even to teachers in the field, I'll mention that um, don't try at the beginning to memorize the, the entire leveling system, but maybe have for fr a frame of reference level three pieces, which might be the easier, the more accessible pieces from the Schumann album for the young, or some of the very easiest of the Anna Magdalena Bach notebook pieces, um, some of the easiest Gurlitt pieces. There's some wonderful, wonderful teaching pieces there. And then I, I mentioned the fact that level six, I think, is a really big deal for students. Level six is when the students may be playing they're Clementi Sonatinas, just the average Clementi Sonatinas, say the Clementi Sonatina, Opus 36, number three. Um, they may also be beginning to play some of the Della Gioia lyric pieces for the young. Um, they may also be beginning the, the little preludes of Johann Sebastian Bach at that point. It's just, a, uh, a period where if we can get our students to that point, they often feel like they really are playing 
and um, um, can be successful with really working through some of the um, upper, intermediate, and lower advanced literature. And then I ask teachers to um, consider level 10 as a place where a student may be playing the easiest of the Mozart sonatas or the most accessible of the Chopin nocturnes, perhaps the Chopin nocturne in C-sharp minor, opus posthumous, um, or maybe one of the, um, or several of the easier Mushinsky preludes. So that's how the leveling system works. And in, in the book, pieces are grouped by periods, Baroque, classical, romantic, and um, contemporary. And um, that helps teachers compare pieces, say in the romantic period, um, between several composers, just for, for various choices. I try to provide just a few comments about each piece, about technical or pedagogical considerations to help the teacher have a frame of reference and know whether to pull out the music, hopefully, and, and really get to know um, some new repertoire. It's just to help help us have variety in our, our teaching, and especially to not to skip from a level three piece to a level seven piece um, with a student. That's that's when students begin to struggle when they have those big skips um, between levels, and the students don't realize what's happening um, in their development. But it certainly um, impedes it often. Yeah, I want to talk about these skips that you're talking about because one thing that I have happen a lot in my teaching is students will come in and all of their familiarity with piano is hearing these pieces that are closer to level 10, which they hear on YouTube or in a concert, and they're very excited, and they come in and say, I want to play that. Sure. <laughs> I don't know if this is a level 10 piece, but I just recently had a 10-year-old uh, student who's been taking lessons for one month and brought in the full sheet music of Maple Leaf Rag, and is like, I love this piece, I want to play this. And so... It's tough because that impetus that they're experiencing of wanting to play these hard pieces is actually something I do want to nurture. And I like that they're excited about these pieces. But at the same time, as you said, we don't want to skip levels. And one of the premises of your book is that this sort of path of pianistic development is sequential. And you really have to work towards these gra gradually like more difficult pieces as opposed to jumping the gun. So in situations where we have students who are really eager to play pieces that are not quite at the level they're at yet. Do you have any advice for how to get them to more fully appreciate the music that is at the ranking that they are actually at and not have them feel impatient about the gradual nature of development that you describe in your book? Ben, this is such an important question. And it's it's something that every teacher, well, in a way, hopefully every teacher gets to deal with. Because if a student wants to play something above their level, um, that means they're listening to other music. And they're, you know, they're excited about music. So we want to celebrate that um, and appreciate that um, in them. Um, and, you know, I think we deal with this different ways um, um, with students. Um, sometimes, well, let me just say, I think we we want to develop with every student a real trust in them 
that we are the teacher and we can help choose the right repertoire for them and that we're going to listen to them. I mean, we want them to be fulfilled. Um, sometimes, I mean, and it's just occasionally, um, we might let them learn a simplification of a piece. But um, barring that, um, sometimes I'll say with a student, you know, after you learn these pieces, or can we save that and then work on it um, um, in the fall of next year, de depending on how far it is from their, from their level. One thing that I believe my pre-college teacher did so well with me, um, it was Mrs. McCown in um, the small town of Conway, South Carolina. Um, and I think she did this several times, but I remember her especially piquing my interest about the Bach Inventions. And she began, for some reason, I don't know if she was more excited or me, about getting to play the Bach Inventions. She started the year by saying, you know, I think you'll be ready to play Bach Inventions this summer. And I had no idea what Bach Inventions were, but it, I was, I was okay. And then she would say it again. She said, you know, I'm looking forward to your being able to play a Bach Invention this summer. And she, she mentioned it just several times and really um, primed me to love that music. And, you know, I think it also taught me to love Bach um, because I thought it would be so, so special. Um, I will say often to our pedagogy students um, something like this. And the statement is, when I, when I say it first, Easy music played well sounds hard. And I don't really mean to categorize something as easy or hard, quote, um, but it is a fact pieces are different levels. And often, if I have the students trust, I let them hear the piece. Either I'll play their, their new piece or let them listen to a recording of it. Often they'll have a choice between two pieces. Not always. That can that can get out of hand a little bit, um, and we want them to trust um, our choices. But letting them hear what their new piece will sound like fosters that enthusiasm. Occasionally, in a sensitive student, it comes to mind that that student might think, "Oh my gosh, I can never do this." And in that case, I think we say you know, I'll help you with that. Um, I have, think I have some things that I can help you with in that section that you're worried about or, or something to that, to that, uh, that point. Um, I do think in, in, in closing on this, that we need to listen to the student. Um, and if we do give them a piece that's out of their out of their range, perhaps we don't spend an entire year on it and maybe say, you know, let's work on this for six weeks and then we put it aside and pr promise them and follow through with the fact that we will come back to it. So it's, and it's just something we have to deal with on an individual mm -hmm. 
vases. Yeah, I really like that anecdote you gave about the teacher who was kind of foreshadowing that the Bach inventions were to come. So you had a clear sense of what was in sight, at least in my experience, what's been very helpful and why I so appreciate your book is it's allowed me to when students request pieces that are too hard to clearly delineate them what the path is to work towards those paces. And I can show them this is a this level and we're going to do this level this then this. I think earlier in my teaching career, when students would request pieces that were too hard, I would just say no, too hard. And they kind of feel defeated. But in situations like what you're describing with your teacher with the Bach preludes and with um, your book in general, at least we spell out the path for them so they can see that they are gradually working towards these new difficult pieces. And it's not just we're flat out rejecting it um, in the way that maybe I used to do when I first started teaching. And, and absolutely. And I think it's exciting to them to realize there's a path and that you're you're guiding them down that path. Um, I think it gives them confidence in, you know, us as their teachers. Um, it makes it more exciting. Absolutely. Now, thinking about this idea of kind of what makes a piece hard and what makes a piece difficult, I'm interested if there's, of course there is, and in what ways there's more to it than just being able to play the rhythms and pitches correctly. So I'm a voice teacher as well as a piano teacher, and in the voice world, it's rare, unless it's really a highly virtuosic piece, that a student is unable to correctly get the notes and rhythms. But there's much more to it than that, and that beginner students are encouraged not to sing belty songs, again, not because they aren't able to get the actual like frequency of the pitch correctly or the rhythms, but it's that it invites poor technique that could be damaging to their development. And so I'm wondering if there's any equivalent in the piano world in ways that we can think about what makes a piece difficult that are beyond notes and rhythm. So do you see any equivalent situation where we might have a piece that a student would in theory be able to play quote unquote correctly, but we're working on that piece is still not a productive use of our lesson time and might even potentially send them backwards in their development? You know, that's such a, a, a great comparison. I don't know that I would have thought of that um, in the vocal repertoire since I, I don't deal with it. And yet that's a, that's a great analogy. And I think it does definitely apply to the piano repertoire. I, I should mention at the outset, pieces that have too many stretches for a young hand can, can be detrimental. And that a student, if they just reach the hand out and try to play the stretch um, with a stiff hand, um, they can um, lose some of the malleability and the ability to really um, move around the keyboard. So I, I'd like to talk about people with, with smaller hands being able to scamper about the keyboard and move with flexibility. So this idea of stretches really is part of our repertoire. Um, and many female, but also male students, um, all of our hands have to develop and children develop physically with the strength of their hands. Um, at different stages. Now, teachers, of course, build technique in, but um, that's still something to watch out for, those large stretches for a child that's too, that's too young. And also, another thing to look out for are pieces with too many double notes. 
or big chords when the hand is not yet developed. Um, I mean, an advanced example of that would be double six, a passage in double six in um, a single hand um, is pretty advanced for students. Yes, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I think I remember reading in one article that you wrote that you yourself experienced an issue with playing double six too much and it created some kind of injury, if I remember correctly. Absolutely. It actually occurred um, after my master's degree when I was practicing on my own. And this is probably pretty advanced technique, but I felt I had learned double third scales and felt they really, really helped my hand. But mine was not a hand to play double six, and mm-hmm. I didn't realize it I, um, myself. And um, in practicing them, really without the supervision I should have had, it did um, it did kind of set me back, and I had to stop playing for for several months because of that. Um, so we need to be careful with those double notes, um, especially, especially for children. Um, uh, teachers also need to resist the temptation of assigning, you know, a contest piece just because they heard someone else's student play it and it might seem to win a contest if it doesn't fit the student. You know, I always assign repertoire with a student in mind first. Um, and I know there are some pieces that, in a way, all students need to play, but then we want them to play them at the right time, if that's mm-hmm. um, one's philosophy. I personally like to match the student's temperament to a piece. In performance, I like to have a student play what they play best. Um, in other words, if they're working on, oh, an advanced student, um, or lower advanced student, even working on playing octaves. And that's not their thing um, yet with their hand. Sure, it's okay to practice it in pieces, but I'm not going to put them on stage usually in an uncomfortable position um, when there's something that they sparkle. Um, and I use that word on purpose, more playing. Um, another danger is that we might assign pieces that say take, you know, a year to learn and then another year to mature with. And that's an exaggeration, but maybe it's not an exaggeration, actually. Um, What happens is if they spend much too long learning a piece, they lose their interest in it. You know, if they're working section, you know, two lines by two lines. or, you know, one page and then the next week one page more and then maybe adding one more page. It becomes piecemeal and it becomes kind of a real task um, to get something to get something mastered. So there, there really are challenges um, and temptations, you know, in assigning pieces when students aren't ready for them. Often the student will tell us, not in words, but we can see it in the progress that they're making on a piece, that a piece is too hard. And it happens to all of us. I've done it um, certainly also. And we get out of it gracefully um, um, by acknowledging the student has done their best and done a good job of learning a piece up to this point. And um, um, let's put it aside for now. 
and you know perhaps we'll come back to it later um, and perhaps we don't um, whatever you tell the student we do want to try to follow through with um, so those are those are some suggestions um, I really think we need to watch out for their hands to help their hands develop so that um, there's a strong hand position and not a, a stiff hand or a tense hand. That reminds me of the actually the very, very first lesson that I ever taught straight out of college when I knew nothing. And um, on this point you made about stretching and watching out for big stretches, it was a four-year-old, which in my head, I was like, oh, four-year-old, that's so easy. When actually I learned later, that's one of the most difficult ages to teach. And so I tried to have them do twinkle, twinkle, little star. And so when it got to the A, I told her, stretch. And so she stretched her, and she actually said, ow, <laughs> after she did that. Um, and I think that goes to show we can weigh completely just think about notes and rhythms and not think about the tech needed to achieve those notes and rhythms and stretching, as well as all the other things you said there, is so important for us to consider as piano teachers. Um, I want to go on this idea of, again, different repertoire to choose. So oftentimes different teachers have different opinions about using, quote unquote, real repertoire as opposed to specifically like pedagogical pieces in, say, method books. Um, there are some teachers who save the standard classical canon works really for their more advanced students, and instead they use method books like Piano Safari or something, and any use of sight reading is with books that are specifically made for sight reading, again, as opposed to real pieces or theory books as opposed to having using real pieces as the basis for theory. And then there are other teachers who really don't use method books and start out with the simplest repertoire pieces straight away. And whenever they do sight reading, they sight read real pieces. Whatever theory they do is, again, based on real pieces. And again, I know I'm using this word real in a somewhat subjective way. And I know this isn't an either-or situation, and many teachers teach from method books alongside repertoire pieces. But can you offer any thoughts on the possible benefits or drawbacks of the distinction between method books where the pieces are really written to teach specific concepts versus using, again, these quote-unquote real pieces as a teaching tool? There is so much to think about in this question. Um, and it certainly is central, I think, to, to so many teachers teaching. With a, a, a well-written piano method, um, one of the real pluses is that the presentation of early level pieces um, is very ordered so that concepts are presented in a sequential way and hopefully, and certainly it's a desire, that those concepts are reinforced through the pieces that are written specifically to, to reinforce that. Um, I found that when I try to just present the concepts to a beginner, it's difficult um, to remember everything. Now, I also acknowledge that sometimes with a method, um, if we feel the concepts are presented too slowly, oh, we might present, you know, five finger patterns in different keys, even if that method doesn't do so, and that's that's fine. But I really like the ordering um, in many of the beginning pieces. These authors are are very skilled in their writing. And they move from concept to concept clearly and really smoothly. And so the pacing within the method hopefully is, is 
important. Um, the best methods, as I mentioned, give a good many review pieces um, and also present hopefully some theoretical concepts just within the method as well as even some sight reading examples. The um, a minus with the method books could be um, that if the student stays in them too long, they could miss out on perhaps some of the great um, accessible classical works. Um, and occasionally the music can seem stilted um, to students in trying to work through a con concept. All of that can be um, worked through by maybe starting classical pieces concurrently with, say, level three or level four of many of the the well-known methods that are there so that actually there are two um, um, parallel trains of trains of work. In um, classical literature, a student, a real plus is that a student is exposed to so many styles early on and can build on that. Um, obviously music um, of the great masters from the Baroque through the um, current day literature. And students hearing that really artistic music, excellent music from the start, um, begin to learn what artist great music is and the application of artistry to, to everything they play, hopefully. Um, there's a great wealth of, of accessible music, really at all levels, you know, and I'd like to say between level three and level 10, or really level one and level 10. Um, and those pieces come, these classical pieces come in a variety of lengths. Some are quite short, some are longer. Um, and of course, this goes for method books as well. But um, especially with the classical literature, um, we can choose a shorter piece when a student needs a boost or what I'd like to even call a quick study piece um, um, while a student's, you know, mastering um, concepts or something like that. Um, a difficulty with this classical, choosing classical literature is it can be hard to sequence that music um, um, just by yourself, but it's certainly possible. And te most teachers become really adept at sequencing um, literature, you know, by by levels um, for their for their students. There are some anthology as out that also can help with that, um, and so that that can be a plus. In other words, the anthologies are have a collection of pieces by classical composers grouped by level. Um, so there are ways to work work with the real wealth of literature that we have for teaching. I mean, we're so fortunate, I have to say. Absolutely. And I think kind of the point that all of this shows there is that there's so much for teachers to consider beyond just the repertoire. I mean, you brought up so much there about sort of the um, aesthetics of the 
real repertoire pieces and you mentioned application of artistry there's also the consideration of the length of these pieces there's the consideration of sequencing i mean there's so much that the teacher has to do that in a way ultimately it's really the teacher who drives the lesson much more so than the repertoire and i know sometimes with teachers there can be a temptation to be you know what i think uh, nicola canton refers to as a, a page turner teacher where you kind of just put the method book in front of the student and say oh okay looks like page one is talking about sharps here's what a sharp is oh page two looks like it's this piece here's the challenges of this piece. and kind of let the book do all of the work for them but as i think is clear a great teacher can make almost any piece work in their studio and can make any method book fit with any with the students that they're working with and um, there's so much more beyond repertoire so do you have any advice on how we as teachers can truly make whatever pieces we use whether it be a method book or whether it be a real standard classical piece really come alive in our studio and put our mark on it as a teacher as opposed to as I was saying earlier just kind of flipping through the pages and let the repertoire book or the method book do all the work for us. You know, I think you hit it on the head um, in what you're saying about the teacher is the driver of the lesson in a positive way so that um, um, use that to your own situation to bring your students to excellence. I'd like to say that enthusiasm breeds enthusiasm. And I will also tell my stu my pedagogy students, um, I'm different in a private lesson. I mean, I really love what we do and I love the music. And I let the students see that. I mean, um, um, because I want it to be contagious. So in, in driving a lesson, what we're doing is tr making magic in the lesson. And, sh and sharing the magic of a piece or a special moment in a piece um, or uh, steps to to help a student bring a piece alive. Um, that's all what, what a lesson's about. I'd like to say that it's really important to have many aha moments um, in a lesson. You know, Ben, teachers can assess their own lessons in certain certain ways um you know is there laughter in your lesson you know does everyone do you do you, do you guys smile that's interesting uh, yeah during a lesson so that is it's relaxed and there is mm -hmm. is joy that's that's coming coming through the lesson um and another thing um that's um teachers can do to assess a lesson is how much of the lesson does a teacher spend talking rather than the student doing something. And if you see them put their hands in their lap and just look at you for a while or look somewhere else or look down, goodness, um, we're probably talking too much. Um, I've had um, um, student teachers that when they do this, I'll suggest something like, try to say what you have to say in three or four sentences and clock yourself and see if you can do it. Yeah. And that helps the back and forth yeah. of the lesson. When I took a, a pedagogy classes in graduate school, my teachers did exactly that too. And it was so helpful. It's just kind of a measure um, where we can tell, you know, if, if what's happening in the lesson. So, you know, that idea of flipping through the pages really does happen. And if you 
if we ever catch ourselves doing that, you know, like, okay, let's see what comes next in the book. We want to just maybe add a little bit of that um, enthusiasm or magic to that lesson. One thing we can say, I, I, I actually put together at one point in my life, a list of sentences to say, to kind of foster that enthusiasm, just like a sentence like this one really suits you well, or I've been waiting for you to get to this piece or, you know, something like that. Teachers can come up with their own um, statements to bolster the student's enthusiasm. Yeah, one thing that I've done a lot to sort of gauge student enthusiasm is something I actually read that you've advocated a lot in a lot of your articles, which is video recording your lessons and then watching back. And I think in doing so, you can see, as you were mentioning before, is the student looking down a lot? Is the student laughing? Um, that's one very helpful sort of teaching tool. Um, so although we kind of spoke about repertoire a lot today, of course, you you know, are sort of a guru for all things music pedagogy. Um, I also know you recently published a new uh, work. So before we go, can you talk a little bit about this new book that you published, um, which I believe it is uh, called Piano Literature for Teaching and Performance, a graded guide and annotated bibliography, a little bit about that book, and just uh, in general, a little bit more about what you're up to nowadays and how anyone listening can continue following their work or if they're not already doing so, how they can start following your work? Sure. Um, this The new book will be available in November of this year. And I'm, I'm really excited about a lot of what we've been able to include. Certainly, it's so refreshing to me to look at the standard repertoire and to realize how much great music there is that's not performed. And so I'm hoping teachers, you know, can diversify their repertoire that they teach in that way, find um, alternatives um, for, for some of the pieces that they assign more often. I think it keeps teachers fresh as well as the students um, in that way. And just as a personal project for teachers, just to learn more composers also can be enriching we do have a good many underrepresented composers that are presented in the book, and um, hopefully that can be helpful since this is so important. Um, Absolutely. Music by women and, and um, composers of many different nationalities and ethnicities to be performed. Um, I'm currently, I'm still doing some workshops now. Um, now, hopefully in person, and I'm in the late stages of working on an online course for the Francis Clark Center on Intermediate Piano Literature that we, we hope that'll be available, that will be available in January or February of 2022. Um, teachers are always welcome to write me by um, email at um, my email address is still through the University of Oklahoma. It's jmcgrath at ou.edu. So that's J, my first name, and then McGraw, M-A-G-R-A-T-H at ou.edu. Or they can check my website, janemcgraw.com, um, and be in touch. And they might some we have been going to Austria um, to the classical music festival full we have a piano seminar 
affiliated with that. So hopefully we'll get to go again in August of 2022. So that's something to look forward to. Um, so Ben, thank you for having me today. That's all very, very exciting. Um, so before we go, I just wanted to say just a personal note. Earlier in this interview, you uh, said a phrase that I liked. You said, enthusiasm breeds enthusiasm. And I think that was you know, to be a little personal, like my experience when I first read Pianist's Guide to Standard Teaching and Performance Literature, and that the enthusiasm about this repertoire shines through on every page. And when I first read that, that was uh, when I first started teaching, and I was uh, feeling a little bit overwhelmed and not, frankly, very enthusiastic about teaching. And I did kind of feel like I was just picking random pieces. And that book really helped me get a lot more enthusiastic about teaching and has been very helpful to this day. So thanks so much for everything you do. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. It's really been, really been a pleasure. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.